Good evening, everybody. It is January 28th, 2024. Got the year right this time. I'm feeling pretty proud of myself for that. And uh, welcome to another one of our weekly live Alberta politics roundups. I'm your host, Nate Pike. This is The Breakdown. We're going to get into it. We got a lot. Oh, we got so much to talk about tonight. Um, but before we do... I'm going to give you guys some serious whiplash tonight because um, we got a serious thing. It's actually a serious thing. It's not just like Daniel Smith did a bad thing. I mean, that's obviously serious too, but we got a serious thing that we got to talk about tonight. Um, and I'm never sure how to react to some of the emails that we get. Uh, I'm never sure how to, how to present them entirely well, depending on the, the, the content we do for, for context, we, we get a lot of messages from people who are struggling. We get a lot of messages from people who are dealing with a lot of different challenges in this province right now. And we received one this, this week, uh, this weekend in particular that, uh, I'm probably going to do a poor job of presenting, um, because I don't think that there's any good way to to present it. I want to be really clear. I'm not trying to blame anyone um, or anything like that. But I feel like there's a message that we need to make clear. Um, and I don't... Yeah, I'm going to screw this up no matter how I do it. So I'm just going to plow through it and we'll hope for the best. Um, we received an email uh, a couple days ago from the wife of one of our listeners, uh, one of our regular audience members. Now, what the wife said was that uh, he was somebody who regularly followed the show. He regularly forced her to look at uh, some of our, our content, whether it was Twitter posts or videos or, 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 or. Um, at around Christmas time, uh, they apparently both fell quite ill. Uh, and it had turned into something of a protracted illness, um, sort of a respiratory virus type thing. And he only got worse. Uh, and w the wife reached out to, to let us know that just a couple of days ago, he took a turn for the seriously, seriously worse and he passed away. Um, one of the questions that the, the wife posed in the email, and I don't know how to answer this question, um, but one of the questions that the wife posed in the email was, you know, I don't understand why he waited. He was, he was so concerned about the state of the healthcare system. I don't understand why he waited. And that's a question that's, that's never going to get resolved, unfortunately. Um, there's no question that the healthcare system is in a tremendous state of disarray right now. We spent a lot of time talking about it on the show. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about it tonight on the show because there's some very real problems. But I want to be super clear on behalf of myself and everybody who's involved with the show. Um, no matter how bad the healthcare system is, if you think that you need help, if you think that your health is at a point where you need help, if you can't get to see a GP, I know there's lots of horror stories out there about the emergency room, but if you think that you need help or if a family member is saying to you, I'm concerned that you need help, um, get help. If you have to wait in the, the emergency room for 12, 24 hours, it's better to do that if you're, if you're sick. 
if you've got a serious problem going on, it's better to do that um, than to than to wait because you never know what's going to happen. Um, so from all of us at the show to uh, I'm sure this person probably knows who we are. We're not going to use any names. Um, we just offer our sincerest condolences. Um, and to everybody who's listening or watching, whether you're watching live or listening to the podcast, if you think you need help, go get help. Um, because there are people in the healthcare system who care deeply about you. They care deeply about your outcomes and they, I I don't, I don't want to have to, to have this. I don't want to get more emails like this. And I'm not saying bad to the wife. I want to be really clear about that. The The fact that our show meant enough to, to her husband that she felt compelled to reach out is a, a weighty honor. Um, but uh, if you need help, get help. Because it's not worth it. Let the firefighters be the heroes. That's what they... That's it. They, they throw water on things and they do hero hero stuff. Let the firefighters do the hero stuff. Don't be a hero like that. And with that out of the way, <laughs> take a little sip here and then we'll get started into the, the show proper. All right. So, lots to talk about this week. I'm going to try to get right back into the swing of things because um, otherwise I'll just be miserable and... <laughs> God knows I do that enough as is. But uh, we got some things that we got to talk about. At the top of the list, though, it's got to be the NDP leadership race. The NDP had their provincial council this weekend. And one of the things that they hammered out at their provincial council was the rules for the, the NDP leadership race. Now, the full package hasn't been released yet. But... The, the broad strokes are out there now. We we have some dates, so things are things are getting exciting. The the race begins in earnest on February fifth, so we're just talking a couple weeks away. This this thing's going pretty quick here, uh, like a week away, I guess technically. Um, now the big question that everybody had was, what are the membership rules going to be? And we tried to address this on last week's show a little bit where we talked about the fact that leadership races are, they exist for a couple of different reasons. One of them is, of course, yes, to replace a leader. Obviously, there's a a certain utilitarian element to a leadership race. But one of the other pieces that's really, really important when we're talking about leadership races is they're designed to get eyeballs on the party, the party's policies, and they're designed to sell memberships. There were some people who were speculating that in order to uh, be able to vote in the NDP leadership race, you'd have to have your membership as of the day that Rachel Notley stepped down. And we discussed that with our cadre of insiders, and they said, yeah, that's there's no way. And there is no way. You can buy an NDP membership. And this isn't an ad. This is just answering the questions because everybody was like, oh, take back Alberta. Uh, You can buy an NDP membership until April 22nd and vote in the NDP leadership race. So there's several months of membership sales, which only makes sense if you know what uh, the the priorities of any given leadership race are. Now, where this is going to be interesting and where it's going to be interesting to see the leadership package is how they're going to go about prevent David Parker from David Parkering. In order to be a leadership candidate, 
allegedly, you have to have been a member of the party as of August of last year. So if you didn't have your NDP membership as of August of last year, no runsings for you. But if you did, then you could run in the leadership race. But it's going to cost you a little bit of money. $60,000 is the buy-in for an NDP leadership candidate, which might sound like a lot, but it's actually half, less than half, of what the UCP leadership race fee was. So that's kind of interesting. Should be interesting to see how much more that frees up for candidates to uh, to travel the province, to try to sell the memberships, to try to get their names out there more than they already are. Obviously, there's a short list that's already being speculated on as, as to potential candidates. We're not going to focus on that too much tonight, um, just because. But uh, the big reveal, the moment of truth, where Alberta will find out who the new leader of the NDP will be, will be on June 22nd, 2024, just in time for the Canada Day, the, the stampede, the that, that thing that's like a mini stampede that they do at Edmonton, the the Klondike Days, K-Days, or whatever it is now. It's, you know, it's cute. It's cute that you guys do that. It's after the stampede. But, you know, it's cute that you guys have that. Um, it'll be June 22nd. So that gives the new leader of the NDP the entire summer to campaign. And it gives them access to all of the students who will be on summer break to help them campaign. So make no mistakes. The next election for the Battle of Alberta will start in earnest on June 22nd, 2024, even though the next election proper won't be probably until 2027. So welcome to perpetual campaigning, folks. It's going to be going to be delightful moving on from there we got to talk about uh i said we're going to talk about healthcare. we're going to talk about healthcare. we got to talk about the the state of the healthcare system right now a little while ago the the province announced that they were going to be providing 200 million dollars for family physicians to support family physicians because family physicians are having a really rough go of making ends meet right now. Increasing cost of living and everything else, uh, increasing overhead, all of that kind of stuff. And family doctors are burning out and they're leaving. Uh, so the UCP said, we're going to give you $200 million. The feds have given us a billion. Um, they finalized a $1 billion health deal with Ottawa. The federal government's going to be giving Alberta $1 billion. And of that $1 billion, the, uh, the health care budget, Adriano Grange, Minister of Health, has said, you know what, we're going to give family doctors 200, 200 million. And that's great and all, but it sounds like now that that money isn't actually going to be showing up until April. And a recent survey that was done really kind of underscores in very stark terms just how bad things actually are in the land of, of, of family medicine right now. We're going to share a couple of slides uh, from this, this survey that was done. Um, one in five family medical practices are unlikely to be financially viable uh, beyond six months. One in five. So we're not just talking about there's one physician for, per family practice because that's very rarely the case, especially in larger urban centers. We're talking about that entire doctor's office is not financially viable 
beyond six months. So April's going to come right at the, the very, very cusp of that. There's some other information in this that uh, is, is not great. The anticipated timeline for changes to practice, 21% say they have to make changes to their practice within the next three months. 18% say they need to do it within the next six months. 37% say uh, that it needs to be within the next year. Only 10% think that they can last longer than a year without major changes being made. And here's the, the really shocking one. Over six in 10 family physicians are considering moving, retiring, or making significant changes in their service in practices. 61% are saying that they're looking at leaving or retiring. Of that number, 39%, this is 39% of family physicians in the province of Alberta, Uh, 39% are looking for work in another province or country. 38% are leaving the profession or retiring sooner. 61% are looking at a change in service. They're looking at uh, 54% are looking at a withdrawal reduction from comprehensive care. Um, 18% are looking at a withdrawal reduction in AAHS facilities. Um, this is, this is, these are stark numbers when there's a lot of people who are looking for family doctors. And, you know, there's been a few people who have said, you know, Adrienne Algrange, the UCP, they keep saying, hey, you know what, what what's great? Uh, we have this $5 billion surplus. We're so good at money. Um, and there's a lot of people that are saying, if you've got this $5 billion surplus, it would probably be good to chuck some of that towards the the healthcare system and particularly family doctors because one of the things that Daniel Smith has said over and over and over again is the importance of primary care. We're going to talk about that a little bit later as well, but she said over and over again, primary care keeps people from 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 going to the emergency room right now, you know, Daniel Smith said it at her year end, uh, your province, your premier, your propaganda hour. Um, she was very clear. All roads lead to the emergency room right now. Well, they do if people can't access primary care. So if six in 10 physicians are looking at family physicians are looking at making major changes to their practice might be a good time to, I don't know, put a tourniquet on that bleed perhaps. But there's no announcements that have been made. There are some other announcements coming. We're going to be talking about those too. Next up, we got some good news. Which is good. The folks on H finally are catching some breaks. But it's important to keep these breaks in context. uh, Because uh, there's some context. So on January 26th, the government announced that they were going to be changing the age dates back so they were going to be a certain number of business days before the end of the month, which makes sure that uh, everybody who's on age gets the money before the end of the month so that they can pay the things that they need to pay at the end of the month. That's great, right? That sounds pragmatic. It sounds, it sounds reasonable. It sounds like fixing something that should have never happened in the first place. And if we remember who did it, oh, that's right. It was, in fact, the the UCP. It was it was the UCP. It was one of the first changes that they made in 2020. Or, yeah, 2020. They, they shuffled the books, if you will. Um, they changed the age payment dates to outside of the end 
of where the fiscal year ended, which made them look like they were sitting on a, they'd done so well with the monies again, uh, made them, made them look like they'd saved a bunch of money. But basically what they had done is they had moved those payment states and screwed a bunch of people who were on H. So they've fixed their very bad thing that they did. Hooray, I guess. The new schedule is going to be uh, the, the, the first month looks a little challenging, quite frankly, because there's 41 days between payments uh, for February. Uh, the first one will come on February 1st, uh, 2024, and then it goes and 27, 30, 32 days in between. But the most important thing is they're all coming a couple of days before the end of the month. This means that people who are on H will be able to make their rent payments and all of their other payments that they have to make in order to not end up, you know, homeless and stuff. Um, so it's good, but it's something that never had to happen in the first place. Because again, this is something that the UCP broke. And it's really hard to give them sort of a, an attaboy when you you broke it, you you did this. It's like when they de-indexed Aish. They said, oh, well, before the election, oh, we're going to index Aish. We indexed it. Look, everybody, we're, we're matching to inflation, sort of. Um, and then after the election, they said, yeah, we're going to de-index that. And we're going to change the payment dates because we want to look like we saved some money. Um, they have since re-indexed it. And they have now put the payment dates back. But they did the bad things first, so really not sure what the the victory lap would be there. Moving on from there, we got to talk about the big government announcement that happened this week. Not sure why it was a government announcement. It's kind of a, a strange government announcement, given that the government doesn't actually have anything to do with it. It's kind of weird. So, basically what the announcement was, Daniel Smith, Adrienne LaGrange stood up and said, hey, you know what? Um, we've got this, uh, this primary care problem. It's a huge problem. People can't see their family doctors. Uh, all roads lead to the emergency room. It's terrible. We should do something about that. But instead of us doing something about that, what about if we let Shoppers Drug Mart? do something about that. What if we let Shoppers Drug Mart take, take care of the, the problem? And effectively what they announced is that Shoppers Drug Mart, not the Alberta government, Shoppers Drug Mart is making a $77 million investment in pharmacy care clinics in Alberta. So basically what they're doing is they have a private company that is going to be coming in and expanding their role in the primary care network uh, to provide primary care, and I'm air quoting the hell out of that for our audio listeners, to, to provide primary care um, for the, the folks um, who need access to, to primary care. Um, so that's, that's a thing that, that happened. We like to call it profitization here on the show because, in effect, what's happening is they're moving people to these private companies. But it gets complicated in two big ways really quickly. And we got to talk about those two big ways because the first way that it's complicated, and I want to be clear going into this, I'm not denigrating pharmacists, okay? Pharmacists have their area that they are skilled and talented practitioners in. 
no questions, no arguments, not diminishing any of that. To all the pharmacists out there, please don't come for us uh, because you're great. We love what you do. Um, the problem is they aren't particularly trained in diagnostic assessments. And so if people have the impression that they can go to their pharmacists to get prescribed things for conditions that they're experiencing, there's potential for real problems. How do we know? Well, it's, it's kind of already happened. Not too long ago, there was an incident in Alberta uh, where a pharmacist um, did their best. And I want to be clear, again, not denigrating the pharmacist. It's just not their area. Uh, I'll read from the, from the story we have on the screen here. There are limitations for this pharmacist's ability to diagnose. One patient, Kelly Carter, said she came in with what she thought was a urinary tract infection. Molter Center for Urinalysis pre- prescribed antibiotics, telling her to follow up in several days with a telehealth doctor. So no physical exam to speak of. We've got the urinalysis. That's probably good. Takes a little while. Um and follow up with the doctor who will talk to you over the phone or Zoom. But I did get more pain and I went to urgent care, Carter told Goldman. It turned out Carter had a ruptured appendix. She spent nine days in hospital after surgery. Now, this is again, not to say, oh, it's the pharmacist's fault. No, the pharmacist was trying to deal with something that he isn't trained particularly to deal with. Most pharmacists aren't trained in the physical assessment that's required to put a ruptured appendix on the list of a differential diagnosis when you're trying to figure out what's causing this person's pain. And it's very, very easy to look at a certain set of symptoms and go, oh, it's a certain set of symptoms. It must be this. But the problem is it could be a lot of other things. And quite frankly, a ruptured appendix, while incredibly severe, isn't the worst possible option when we're talking about the acute abdomen. Now, again, that's not the pharmacist's area, but this is where the government of Alberta is saying, you know, this is going to be part of our primary care network. It's our first line of health care. There's lots of things that pharmacists can absolutely do to play a role in a primary care network, but to present them as being... Part of the first line of defense is disingenuous and, quite frankly, dangerous. But it also presents a real moral and ethical problem. And this has been pointed out by a lot of physicians since the announcement was made. And that moral and ethical problem is if you go to your doctor's office and you say, I've got... Uh, I've got this abdominal pain. It's a, it's a problem for me. Then the doctor will say, okay, well, we need to send you for some tests. I'm going to send you to the maybe the, maybe the emergency room, maybe in urgent care, maybe a lab, because that doctor shouldn't be able to financially benefit by sending you for tests and those tests being done. It's not how it should work. Because that would incentivize a doctor giving all kinds of tests. If a doctor had shelves of of different medicines and different remedies that they could sell, 
that would present a major conflict of interest. Because all of a sudden, if that doctor says, hey, you know what, I'm going to sell you X, Y, and Z because this is going to solve your problems, everybody wins, hooray. There's real ethical questions that are involved there. Now, obviously, not every doctor is going to go, ha ha, I'll make a fast buck. But the risk is some might. And this is exactly the model that's being set up potentially by using pharmacists to provide primary care, the assessments, and then the solutions all in one stop shopping. It's convenient, but as we highlighted from our appendicitis story, it's also very dangerous, but it also presents this conflict of interest because now that company, whether it's the pharmacist themselves or it's the company that they're contracting with, now that company stands to benefit from the treatments that they're prescribing or providing. This is a major shift in how healthcare is being done. And it certainly should be part of the conversation. And it's pretty stunning that it's part of the conversation that Daniel Smith and Adriana LaGrange could appear to have completely just overlooked. It's almost as if they didn't do any kind of, I don't know, broad consultation with anybody else who's involved in primary care in regards to what are the potential implications and ramifications of a decision like this. Moving on from there. We got to talk about, uh, this is going to get some people fired up. I have no doubts whatsoever. News story popped this week where there are payouts coming for hundreds of Alberta healthcare workers impacted by COVID-19 vaccine rules. Now, there's not a lot of public information that we've been able to find yet on exactly who's getting what and who's getting how much. But the the Coles notes is 696 Alberta Health Service uh, and Alberta Precision Laboratories employees are said to be paid out with some, we don't know the number, receiving as much as $5,000 for their pandemic labor interruption. This comes after a recent settlement between the Health Sciences Association of Alberta, or HSAA, and AHS. Now, there's a lot of gray area here, and there's a lot of places where people are, we've already seen some of the comments on the the social media machines, but there's a lot of people who are a little frustrated, a lot of people who are a little bit angry. But it's important to realize, when we're talking about healthcare workers during the pandemic, for sure, there were some people who said, I don't want to. And there's a separate conversation to be had about that, when we have people who are, are working in evidence-based medicine and they're rejecting evidence-based treatments, that's a whole other conversation. But there were also people who, because of underlying medical conditions of their own, they couldn't necessarily take the vaccines. There were exemptions that, lo- that not lots, but some people got during the pandemic for vaccination because of underlying medical conditions. And in some cases, those people were then told, well, you don't get to work anymore then. And that appears to be the crux of what this decision is about. But it remains to be seen. I want to be really, really clear about that because the details as to whether or not some of these people are people who said, I have religious issues with this, um, we, we don't know yet. So this is going to be a story that we're definitely going to be following as it, as it plays out. Moving on from there. And this is a fun one. I've been looking forward to this one. 
because this picture here started making the rounds on January 23rd. And um, there was an explanation that was posted with it as well. For anybody who's listening to the audio version, I'm talking about the picture that was posted that appeared to be a, uh, a sandwich sign that was posted at the Foothills Hospital at that time, allegedly, um, that was blocking off two handicapped spots. And the text on the sign said, reserved for Minister of Health and Deputy Minister of Health. And obviously, that's not a great look. And so we, we, we shared the picture as well. We weren't the first ones to post it. We're not taking credit. Um, but we shared the picture as well with the question of like, wow, I mean, it would be super on brand, but bad luck, bad luck. And it wasn't, it didn't take very long. Later on in the evening, we received a, uh, a DM. This is from the DMs. Uh, and we were able to confirm that this did in fact come from the press secretary for Adriana LaGrange. And uh, she gave us permission to, to share it. So we did. Uh, she said the sign was put up in air by Foothills Parking. Minister Grange, LaGrange or her ADM was not... I'm reading it as it was written. Don't get mad at me for grammar. Uh, this sign was put up in error by Foothills Parking. Minister LaGrange or her ADM was not at Foothills Hospital today, nor does the minister ever require reserved parking spots at hospitals or any other events. I, I read it as it's written. So that post, that that, you know, from the press secretary, Lagrange wasn't there, and it was it was the Foothills Hospital who was who was in error. Okay, well we'll post that too because we'll give everybody a fair shake. And then CBC ran the story, and there's some there's some fascinating little little bits in here. An email statement from the Ministry of Health reads: A sign made by Alberta Health Services Parking Services was placed in a disabled parking stall at Foothills Medical Center. Minister Lagrange and her health officials did not request the sign, and they do not require a reserved parking spot at hospitals or any other events. The statement concludes by noting that neither Lagrange nor the minister were at the Foothills Medical Center on Tuesday. And this is where it gets interesting. And shortly after, AHS, who are, they used to be at least, arm's length from the government. Two separate, totally different siloed things. Um, shortly after, AHS emailed CBC News the very same statement. So, huh, I guess. Things that make you go, hmm, to quote the CNCA Music Factory. Um, but here's the thing. So... That we, we shared that too, and we heard from some folks who, some of whom have been ministers, uh, some of whom have been MLAs, and they said, oh no, we get reserved parking sometimes. So, <laughs> I mean, obviously it's going to depend on the event, obviously it's going to depend on the venue, and we're not saying that AHS or Alberta Health Services parking uh, didn't make a mistake. We're not saying that. It's fascinating that AHS emailed the very same, I'm, I'm reading from the CBC story, the very same statement. It's fascinating that AHS emailed that statement shortly after the government statement. That's pretty interesting. Um, but you have to admit, it's, it's, it would be, it would be on brand for 
the UCP to do something, let's go, not particularly bright, uh, and then immediately turn around and go, ah, but it's HS's fault. I mean, this is the same government where Daniel Smith was like, where were our thousand surge capacity beds that clearly it illustrates she doesn't know what surge capacity is. Moving on from there. Don't worry, we're getting to the deep dive. We got we're doing a whole thing on the 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 Tucker disaster. Um, but first, we gotta we gotta take care of the 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 small stories, the housekeeping, and hopefully we're gonna have somebody show up a little bit later and help us make uh, a little bit more sense of these things. Let's talk about the contribution limits. So, um, you know what we need in times of economic hardship, uh, when cost of living is extreme, when municipalities are charging for bags uh and napkins and things like that you know what we need we need to give we need to give the political parties more money they're struggling with their multi-million dollars a year donations that are tax deductible so there's new contribution limits that were announced an increase of about 700 dollars a year um for the calendar year any combination of political parties, constituency associations, candidates, and leadership contestants, you can now donate up to $5,000 a year. And it is eligible for tax credit. If it's a nomination contestant, you can donate up to $4,600 a year. And that is not tax deductible. And in Alberta, where we elect our senators, but... They don't get to be senators because that's not how it actually works. You can donate up to $5,000 a year. And if you donate in those exercises in futility, it is available and eligible for a tax credit. Because Alberta. Which brings us to the clip part of the show. Because we have so many clips tonight. Brace yourselves, y'all, because there are so many clips tonight. Um, Daniel Smith, back looking freshly tanned. We hear lovely things about Panama. Um, not saying those two things are connected, but, you know, maybe they are. Uh, Daniel Smith was back this week. She made some announcements. She did some things. She attended some events. And one of those events was yesterday's Your Province, Your Premier, where she was asked a series of, of questions, one of which included, hey, are you going to do anything for the, for the Coots boys? How come you haven't done anything for the Coots boys? And her answer is absolutely fascinating. Uh, on the first one, look, guys, I mean, I, I've had to learn about what I can and cannot do in this position as Premier. And I think we're, we're all very influenced by what we see on American television. And American television, uh, you've, you've got prosecutors that are elected by the people. We don't have that here. In American television, you've got the criminal code that's at the state level. In, Al in Canada, it's at the federal level. In America, governors have the power to give amnesty. In Alberta and in our provinces, we don't. So I, I, I accept that there's th certain things that I can do and certain things that I cannot do. And once these processes have begun, arrests have been made, and the prosecution is underway, it has to play itself out. I'm, I'm, I know that's an unsatisfactory answer for a lot of people who are very concerned about this. But, but, but do know that uh, there, there, there is, uh, there's, I'm just watching it along with anyone else, and, and I, there's nothing I can do to step in, I'm afraid. <laughs> 
I, I love that. I love that that's the, the premier of Alberta saying, ah, oh, you know, the American TV. There's just so much American TV. The American influence. This gets to be relevant later. Don't worry. Uh, the American influence is just so great. People get confused. You know, I, I got confused. I watched The Law and Order and, you know, everybody loves the dun-dun. And I just thought that that's how everything worked, which is unbelievable. Because it's literally unbelievable. In order to accept that Smith made all of those promises, you have to ignore that this is somebody who has been involved in politics, both as a commentator, as well as a politician, for almost two decades now. She's been at this for quite some time. She was leader of the opposition for several years. She was an elected MLA for several years. And Daniel Smith would have us believe that that entire time when she was leader of the opposition, she didn't realize that there were differences in how the Canadian government system and the criminal system works from the American system? That's what we're supposed to be buying right now? I mean, there's no question that there's a lot of people who are, are, you know, lay people, salt of the earth folks. They don't spend a whole lot of time worrying about the structures of government. They certainly aren't people making election promises that presumably would have been researched before they were made as any responsible person making promises would do. Most people don't fall into that category. But Daniel Smith would have us believe, hey, you know what? It's the American influence. We got to watch out for that American influence because they can be misleading. I'm just leaning into this so hard and you got to know why. You got to know what's coming towards the end of this this bit. Um, yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about Tucker in just a minute. But it's absolutely ridiculous that Daniel Smith would try to suggest that to anyone. But there were other questions that came up as well. There is a convoy planned for the second anniversary of the Coots blockade. Well, you know what? And as long as nobody is blocking critical infrastructure and they're doing a peaceful protest, then uh, bravo to them, right? I mean, I, I think the, 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 the reason why it turned into such a, a difficult situation is that there were some cases where critical infrastructure was blocked and it was uh, impairing trade and there was also a, um, a, a large number of uh, vehicles in in ottawa with sort of no end in sight for when it was going to be dismantled but if, if there's a lot of people who want to just celebrate and remember the victory that uh, that we have by having our freedom return then then I'm, I'm all for that let's just make sure that we're not inconveniencing people and we're and we're not blocking roads and we're not blocking borders the victory we have by having our freedom returned. As if the Coots blockade was the reason that all of the healthcare protections that were put in place, that's what was going on there. I mean, that's a pretty telling statement in and of itself. But for Smith to say, bravo for them. Let's not forget that when we're talking about why this commemorative thing happened, it happened 
because there are four people who are facing criminal charges. Conspiracy to commit murder, I believe, because they showed up at the, the blockade, the illegal coots blockade, not just with long guns. And there's some people who say, ah, oh, you know, the long guns are legal, though. Technically, if that was all that it was, you'd probably be right. But if you're verbalizing plans to kill police officers, you'd be less right. If you've got handguns, you'd really be less right. Because anyone who knows anything about firearms ownership, not only in the province of Alberta, but in the country of Canada, knows you can't just be moving your handgun from point A to point B. To move a handgun is actually an incredible process. But there were also, allegedly, pipe bombs found as well. Now, the amount of misinformation that's been gone, going on around this whole case is really quite remarkable. We had a couple of people who tried to send us news stories being like, oh, but look, this is the picture and it's from 2021 and here's the news story. And then you look up that news story. No, that's not the picture at all. Somebody just photoshopped it for you. There's, there's a lot of people who are comfortable lying. But to present people who brought handguns and pipe bombs and body armor to an illegal border blockade and who voiced, allegedly, that they were going to shoot the cops if they needed to, to call that a victory of our freedoms? I don't even know what words to use to describe that. But then came, you'd think, you know, we've, 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 we've had two pretty good, pretty good bombshells. That's got to be the, those are the, the worst things that Daniel Smith could have possibly said in her episode of Your Province, Your Premier. Oh, but you'd be wrong. When it comes to the, the balancing of uh, parental rights with the, uh, you know, with, with kids growing into adulthood, I mean, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with parents wanting to protect their child's innocence as long as possible on issues of sexuality. I, I think that that's a good instinct. But kids do get to a point where they start making their own decisions. And so that's the balance that we're, we're trying to get to, is how do we make sure that we're supporting ch children as they grow into adults to become the people they want to be, but making sure that uh, the parents also have the, the right to, to ensure that materials and education and exposure to some of these discussions happen at an age-appropriate level. So we're, uh, we'll be releasing, we've been having a lot of conversations about this as a caucus, and uh, we've, we've consulted very broadly about it. And so we'll be re releasing policy on this next week. And I, I'm really hopeful that we can depoliticize the discussion and be thinking about the kids who are listening to us as adults talking about these issues that are impacting them and make sure that we, uh, we get the right balance. So you, you'll, you'll see more about that next week. So Daniel Smith is going to be introducing a parents' rights policy. Now, this is where things get really complicated really quickly. First of all, let's take a moment to remember there's no such thing really as parents' rights in Canada. Parents are the custodians of their children's rights. Pretty much, period. The notion of parents' rights. Oh, where does that, that come from again? Oh, right. It's imported from the United States. Hey, didn't you just do a whole bit about how dangerous that can be, Danny? 
But the reality is, is when we're talking about parents' rights, what we're talking about is legislation that's been introduced in other provinces where they've had to invoke the notwithstanding clause. And the notwithstanding clause is happens when a provincial government says, okay, so we're just going to go ahead and violate someone's charter rights. We're going to go ahead and do that. For this thing. It's got a five-year expiry. Alberta has a great history of doing it uh, because we did it to prevent gay marriage. So it wouldn't be the first time that we've done something incredibly bigoted and short-sighted in order to appease a small but vocal minority. We could do that. It would be on brand for this province. But it's important to realize how incredibly dangerous this legislation could potentially be. Because first of all, we're talking about an incredibly small number of kids who are going to school, who are openly, uh, particularly, this is the crux of the whole issue, this is the lever that everybody's pulling on, particularly when we're talking about trans kids. There's just not that many trans kids who are living out, out there. Mostly because of the amount of bigotry and vitriol that gets thrown their way. So we're talking about a pretty small group. Now I've said it before on the show and I'll say it again. If you as a parent have failed to build a relationship of trust with your child where they don't feel safe coming to you and saying, Hey, mom or dad, um... I'm kind of working my way through some stuff here. I'm a little confused. I was hoping for some guidance and support. Um, could you maybe not beat me or throw me out of the house? If, if you haven't built that kind of relationship with your kid, the failure is not your child's. It's yours, period. And I will continue. I, there's lots of people who have said, oh, I don't know if I agree with you on that. That's fine. I don't care. Um, you're wrong. That's the role of a parent is to build that relationship with their kids, to build that trust with their kids. And if you fail to do so to the point where the only place that that kid feels like they can be their authentic selves is at school, that's on you. It's not on the schools. Deal with it. That being said, Danielle Smith claims that she's consulted broadly for what this new legislation that would be uh, introduced. Well... Who, 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 who has she consulted very broadly with? Because the weekend's been, since she made this announcement on her radio show, the weekend has been pretty, uh, pretty enlightening, let's say. The Alberta Teachers Association has come out and said, um, we have not been advised or consulted by the premier minister or government officials about any proposed policy regarding parental or children's rights. Broad consultations on policies affecting the operation of schools must include the teaching profession. You would think. Dr. Christopher Wells, who is a long-standing, incredible advocate, came out and said, consulted with him, certainly not any members of the LGBTQ2S plus community, sorry, 2S LGBTQ plus community. I want to read it like he wrote it. Any policy that harms 2S LGBTQ plus youth and violates their rights will end up in court. The premier will need to invoke the notwithstanding clause to override basic human rights. Focus on the real issues. Brandy Rye, who is the president 
of the Alberta Schools Council Association came out and said, where, when, how have parents been broadly heavily consulted related to parental rights? Why are they being framed as rights versus responsibilities? Show the public the data related to these consultations, then broaden the consultation process before any policy, if any, is presented. So, to be crystal clear, the biggest stakeholders who would be involved in any conversation like this have no awareness of any consultation that has gone on. But the premier of the province apparently is preparing to announce policy that could result in Alberta invoking the notwithstanding clause, which we last did to bar gay marriage in this province. Based on consulting with, we don't know who. It's going to be fascinating to see who she rolls out at the the presumable press conference to try to justify this nightmare. And I'm going to go ahead and say it. When she makes this announcement that she has not discussed with the ATA, that she has not discussed with the Alberta Schools Council Association, that she has not clearly consulted with any of the major organizations from the LGBTQ2S plus community, we are going to see a display of tokenism that is going to be just gross. Because that's the only kind of consultation that she could have possibly done. But speaking of just gross, that wasn't the only speaking engagement that Daniel Smith was involved in this week. She, uh, she, had, a, she had a couple other ones that she did. Because we had an American come to town in the province of Alberta. We made that graphic. We're very proud of it. If you're listening to the audio version, you should, you should at least go back and look for the graphic because we think we crushed it pretty good. Daniel Smith spoke twice. Tucker Carlson. <sighs> Brace yourselves because we're about to get into it in a big way, folks. We're going to play an audio clip. Now, it's important to highlight the audio clip that we're about to play for you is from the Edmonton speech. She spoke for a whopping seven minutes in Edmonton. So she had her little thing here in Calgary and then uh, they, they filmed it all uh, and then she went up to Edmonton for a, a surprise uh, speech of seven minutes and change. Um, and she had some some fascinating thoughts and we're gonna we're gonna this is where we get into the let's fact check this whole shit show because there's so many lies now than ever that we think critically and we hear out various viewpoints and we engage in debate because in today's world cancel culture has not only censored people but people are actively censoring themselves over the fear of being cancelled and I know there are many people, including the mainstream media, CBC was in Calgary today, I'm not sure if they had the courage to show up here tonight. But they've expressed concern or dissatisfaction at me participating. 
participating in Tucker's Alberta events. And I challenge these folks to remember that as a society, whether it be a politician, the media, or any one of us inside this room, we have a vital role in bringing people together to discuss difficult and controversial ideas. Now, you know what the left wants to do? The left wants safe supply. They want to trap people in their addiction. They're now even talking about giving fentanyl to minors in British Columbia as a safe supply without even telling parents. Well, I'm here to tell you there's no such thing as a safe supply of fentanyl or heroin or cocaine. We're still doing that, apparently. We're still doing that. There's no such thing as a safe supply of fentanyl. <sighs> Okay, then, let's get into it. First of all, Danielle Smith, she spent a good amount of time talking about the importance of, hey, you know what, we have to welcome opposing viewpoints. We have to have debate. We have to be willing to hear anything. And then she launches into an attack on the left. Now, it's important to realize that when we're talking about safe supply, as we've talked about on multiple previous issues, when we're talking about harm reduction, as we've talked about on multiple previous episodes, when we're talking about these things, we're not talking about political leanings. We're talking about evidence-based medicine, period. We had the whole conversation with Ewan Thompson from Drug Data Decoded, uh, where we talked about the recent study that came out that showed that when it comes to forced treatment, 4% of people were successfully treated. 96% people relapsed within two months. Guess forced treatment doesn't work. That's just one study, but there's lots of them that demonstrate the exact same thing. Same with safe supply. People's disagreement with safe supply is not based on evidence. It is based on ideology. So to try to frame the left wants to introduce uh, fentanyl to kids. My God, could you imagine? You'd have to because it's not really true at all in the way that it's been talked about. And we're going to take a second to talk about it. So where does this whole thing come from? Where does this whole idea that we've seen repeated at length, the BC wants to give fentanyl to kids. They just want to hand it out. Like, bop rocks, I guess. Uh, where does that come from? Well, it comes from a, a news editorial. I'm not sure exactly exactly what to call it. We, we had a, a little bit of run-in of the author of this article. His name is Adam Zevo. He tried to, to beak at us a little bit on the Twitter machine. And we said, well, if you want to come on the show, you're more than welcome to. And he said, well, okay, I will come on the show. And then we said, okay, let us know when. And he said, la, la, la. And then we went back to him and said, hey, no, but seriously, if you want to have a real conversation about this, we would love to have a real conversation with this with you. And he said, la, la, la. He's a writer. Um, for a, 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 a publication. And he has had a major axe to grind with the idea of safe supply. The headline from his article that all of this rhetoric is based on Adam Zevo. BC plans to give safer supply fentanyl to minors and parents won't have a say. Now, the subheading starts to get a little bit more closer to the truth. There's no minimum age listed in protocols for providing youth with taxpayer funded, and then we call it recreational fentanyl. Where does this come from? 
Where 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 are these? What are these protocols? What is this? We're giving recreational fentanyl to the kids come from? Well, they come from a prescribed safer supply protocols that uh, are specific to the provisal of prescription fentanyl. Now, this is a safer supply program. And it's a set of protocols that were developed at the request of the government of British Columbia to say, hey, if we're going to provide safe supply, if we're going to provide prescription fentanyl to people who are using fentanyl anyways, how do we provide that fentanyl? How do we provide that prescription fentanyl? What do the rules look like? And it's quite a lengthy document. And there's some important pieces that we got to look at. The first one has to do with who's even eligible for the program, because that sets some really important context. So the following considerations for eligibility should be assessed and documented in the participant's health record. Active opioid use disorder diagnosis. So this has to be somebody who is addicted to opioids and they have to have ongoing active unregulated fentanyl use. So they are relying on a street supply of opioids, which has been demonstrated time and time again to be profoundly toxic and one of the biggest reasons that people die from drug poisonings. And they have to be at high risk of overdose, injection-related harms, or other harms related to the use of unregulated opioids via detailed clinical assessment, including overdose history. So, what does the assessment have to look like? They have to have active substance use uh, assessment. They have to have substance use and treatment history. They have to have a history of overdose and other drug-related harms. So criminalization is the one that's used there. They have to have a history of injection-related harms, uh, comorbid mental and physical health conditions, prescribed and non-prescribed medic medications. They have to have a urine drug test within the last two weeks. Uh, that shows that they are using fentanyl. They have to have baseline liver and renal function tests completed within the last three months and reviews. They have to review the potential precautions and they have to review the potential contraindications. What's the first contraindication? No history of opioid use. The second one, opioid non-tolerance as demonstrated by a negative urine drug test and no past history of this sort of therapy. If they have opioid use disorder without fentanyl use, that is a contraindication. If they have any hypersensitivity, they have any disabling medical or mental health condition that precludes the safe participation. If they're pregnant, there's a whole list of things that right out of the gates say you have to demonstrate that you have an active fentanyl addiction. You are in the throes of an active fentanyl addiction. You are on the streets seeking fentanyl. That's who this program is for. And when we start to talk about the, the minors piece, here's where Mr. Zevo gets his, his knickers all in a knot. Because one of the precautions for the program, if any of the precautions are identified during the assessment process, 
they should be documented, and a second prescriber should review. So the first physician who's looking at all of this and, and potentially prescribing it, if they identify any of these things, they have to go, okay, I need somebody else who does this same thing to take another look and to give their approval as well. So there's a whole nother level of practitioner at place here. The second provider, prescriber review, discussion, and final decision should be documented. What's the very first thing? Youth less than 19 years of age. Now, there is no, well, we shouldn't give it to six-year-olds. But again, let's go to the inclusion criteria or the things that somebody has to demonstrate that they're doing to even be considered for this program. They have to be in the throes of an active fentanyl addiction. A lot of six-year-olds running into that problem, Adam? Kind of doubtful. So what Mr. Zevo has done is he's presented a partial view of what this program is. And he's locked on to the one fact that they don't have a, an exclusionary low age. But here's the question that you have to be asking. If there's a 14-year-old kid who is in the throes of an active fentanyl addiction and they meet all of the other criteria that I just listed off, would you rather that kid continue to access a toxic supply that's on the streets of BC and quite frankly, Alberta that's killing people or would you rather them be able to manage their addiction using a safer supply? Now, of course, unsupervised use of fentanyl is always going to carry dangers. Unsupervised use of any substance is going to carry dangers. Unsupervised use of Alcohol is going to carry dangers. But the equivalent would be to say, hey, you know what? There's this 13-year-old kid, and he's been going out to the hills, and he's getting his moonshine from this guy. He might be mixing in some battery acid. We don't know. But rather than let him access something safely and maybe get plugged into some services, we should, we should not. We should just not. Keep them in the moonshine battery acid. Think about the things that I listed off at the beginning there. All of the different criteria that are required for somebody to even access this program. Does that sound like a kid whose parents are super engaged anyways? Because it doesn't to me. Under 19 years of age. It's pretty straightforward. There's not going to be a whole lot of kids accessing that program, if any. And it's incredibly harmful to have a reductionist approach and just fixate on one little thing in order to try to destroy a program that could very easily save a lot of lives. And that's what the evidence says. And it's not an issue of left or right. It's that's what the science is. And if our political spectrum has gotten so messed up 
that left now means I accept science. We got some real big problems with how the Daniel Smith, at least, is defining the right. But we have more that we need to talk about because, like I said, those comments were made at the uh, the opening of the the Tucker Carlson sworn enemy tour is what he called his little sojourn into uh, into Alberta. God bless him. And. Uh, there's some things that we got to talk about with the Tucker thing. First of all, a lot of people have already said this. For the premier of Alberta, given Tucker Carlson's history, we talked about this on our last episode. The guy has been caught saying, you know what? I will lie to my audience to make money. I'm paraphrasing, but when we take a look at the whole Dominion lawsuit and the text messages that were released through there, that's what he said. So if we're talking about a credible source of debate, Tucker Carlson ain't it. And we're going to spend the next half hour showing you exactly how. Because Tucker did publicly release his speeches. Now, Daniel Smith has defended her choice to appear on Tucker Carlson's uh, hate rally. I don't know. Some people called it that. Uh, Temper tantrum. Maybe. I don't know. By saying, well, Tucker's got this great big huge audience. There's so many people who listen to him. Most of them are Americans. And you just said on your radio show that American information is part of the problem that we have in Canada. So, okay, but choices, whatever. Um, so we're going to go through a couple of the, 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 the tips, the insights that Mr. Carlson had for engaging in constructive debate effective as a political movement or a resistance movement, which effectively you are, if you don't laugh at your enemies. Because not only are they evil, and they are, they're also ludicrous. They're ludicrous. And it's really important to say that because it saps their power immediately. Laughing at somebody, and if you're a, a married man, you know that, no, it's true. Your wife could come and hit you in the face with a two-by-four, and that would be less painful than having her laugh derisively at you, particularly when you get out of the shower. That would just end it for you. That would end it. Your male power would evaporate like a puddle on a hot day, like you'd be done, because it has that effect. And so to look at your enemies, like let's say you had some sort of weird prime minister like to dress up in fussy costumes. It would be super important to point that out a lot. Like, relentlessly. Somebody told me last night that his base, I, I was asked, we had this wonderful dinner last night with two of the most famous people in Canada, probably the two most famous people, Lord Black and my friend Dr. Jordan Peterson, and I asked, um, I asked, like, is there anyone in the country who supports this guy? He's so, pr I mean, I know him only, I've never met him, I only know him through television. I know his cousin Gavin Newsom uh, pretty well, but I don't know him. Is there anyone who takes him seriously? And they, everyone in the room said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Young people, particularly young women, take him very seriously. They love him. And I thought, there's really only one way to combat that. And that's by pointing out what an absurd poser this guy is. He's like a ridiculous figure. Like, you should dislike and resist Justin Trudeau and his government to the maximum extent of your ability. But before you do that, before you do that, 
you should just laugh at him until you can't breathe. Seriously. The guy's like, he's showing up for a costume party when no one else is. There's no costume party. And there's Justin Trudeau, like speaking as some sort of moral voice, weird little cross-dresser. So anyway, that's my first piece of advice. So we've got the homophobia well in there. Um, not necessarily homophobia. I guess transphobia would probably be the better word with the, the weird little cross-dresser comment. But this is, this is the tone and the tenor. And I'm going to I probably say we've got like 15 minutes worth of Tucker Carlson clips that we're going to wade our way through because it's important to understand what he says. It's important to understand what he's feeding people. And by extension, Premier Smith, by sharing a stage with him, on both of these presentations is providing to people is legitimizing for people. So in this first clip, we have Tucker Carlson saying, Hey, you know what? These people are your enemies and they're evil. If people disagree with you, they're your enemies and they're evil. I'm not paraphrasing. These people are your enemies and they're evil right at the beginning of the clip. So the, the Tucker Carlson approach to reasonable debate appears to be dehumanize people as much as possible. Let's make anybody who disagrees with us our enemies and let's make sure that everybody understands that they're evil. This isn't just a debate of ideas. This is a titan clash between good and evil. That's how we're framing the conversation. That's how we're starting the Tucker Carlson presentation. But don't worry, because it gets way worse. That aren't, in fact, perspectives. They're attacks on you. And that's the main thing that I want to say in the short time allotted today, is that you should recognize what is happening to you. This is not a political debate to which you've been invited to participate. This is a destruction of you and your culture and your beliefs and your children and your future as a country. And that's not overstatement. It's provable statistically. So just take three steps back. If you have a government that is giving fentanyl to your children, as they are in BC, and notice your premier has a no fentanyl to kids policy, God bless her. Um, I know, and you're applauding. I mean, and I'm applauding, and I'm grateful. But how distorted is your world where you have to applaud the one politician's like, you know, we're not going to give fentanyl to the kids today. Okay? But then take two steps further back from that and ask yourself, if someone's giving fentanyl to your children, what, what, what's kind of the message of that? Well, they're trying to kill your children, obviously. Fentanyl? It's the number one cause of death under 40 in the United States. Number one in the whole country. Followed by suicide. If you want to know where we are, we're about two years behind you. And it's only because we have a louder media space than you do that we aren't ahead of you. But if someone's giving fentanyl to your children without telling you, they're trying to kill your children, which are your inheritance. So the only meaningful thing you will ever produce on earth, okay, are your children. That's a fascinating way to define human value. You're only of any worth if you've ever had kids. If you haven't, maybe you're infertile. You're worthless. But the greater problem, or another problem, is probably a better way to say that, 
with Tucker's little rant there, is if people are giving fentanyl to kids, they're trying to kill kids. When, if he actually had a clue what he was talking about and he understood that the, this is literally a safer supply program that's designed to save lives. And if Tucker actually looked at what the leading cause of death was for people under 40, it's not just fentanyl, it's the toxic supply. America is the one country in the world that quite possibly is the last country in the world that should be leading or trying to lead the conversation on how to deal with drugs. Their war on drugs has thrown more money down the toilet than almost any of their endeavors. And it has had no perceivable effect on whether or not people want to use drugs. So to try to use American statistics as an example, where in many states, very recently, and in some you still can, go to jail for marijuana, which is legal entirely across Canada. Must drive Tucker nuts. Don't worry, it does. He gets to that later. But the notion that anybody who's giving fentanyl to kids is only could only possibly be doing so to try to kill kids is, again, dehumanizing. Again, misinformed. And then he got into MAID. Killing 50,000 of your citizens if the government is doing that through the MAID program. And a lot of them are not actually terminally ill, they're just sad. And the government is encouraging them to submit to being killed by the government and then won't release the re recent statistics. Like, what is that? What is that? Yeah, it's genocide. That's exactly what it is. It's killing large groups of people. And who are those people, by the way? We don't, we don't know because your government hasn't released the stats. What percentage of those were born in Canada? I'd bet right around 100%. So if you're a government, you have the duty to your citizens, people who are from here, people whose ancestors built the place, not exclusively to them, but primarily to them, to your citizens. Like, why else do you exist except to serve your citizens? And if you're targeting your citizens, how many people who arrived in Canada in the last 10 years have opted into the MAID program? I don't know the answer. I'd bet around zero. It's all people who are from here. And now the government brags, oh, we're saving money because they died. That's the darkest thing I can imagine. I bet there's zero conversation about that in this country because I know this country and I know what it's like. It's too horrible. No one wants to talk about it. You should talk about it. But more than anything, you should internalize the message of that, which is they hate me. They hate me to the point they're willing to kill me, which they are. Nope. That's not what happens at all. He's just lying. The, the implication that the, the, there were 50,000 people who were killed um, through MAID and most of them were just sad, is not only incredibly dismissive, but it's patently false. And if Tucker had bothered to do a cursory Google search before he decided to get up on stage and lie to people, he would know that mental health isn't being considered for made until 2024, March of 2024. But let's take a look at what the federal criteria are for made right now to maybe get a little bit of little bit of accuracy, a little bit of context. Because it's certainly lacking in Tucker's little diatribe there. 
So as of March uh, 17th, 2021, persons who wish to receive MAID must satisfy the following eligibility criteria. They must be 18 years of older and have decision-making capacity. They must be eligible for publicly funded health care services. They make a voluntary request that is not the result of external pressure. They give informed consent to receive MAID, meaning that the person has consented to receiving MAID after they have received all information needed to make this decision. They have a serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability, and again, excluding a mental illness until March 17, 2024. They have to be in an advanced state of irreversible decline in capability, and they have to have enduring and intolerable physical or psychological suffering that cannot be alleviated under conditions the person considers acceptable. But Tucker Carlson would have you believe that the vast majority of people who are accessing MAID are doing so because they're sad. Now, we looked and we couldn't find any record of the government of Canada taking a victory lap over how much money that they were saving by having people access made, which is, to be clear, something that that person chooses of their own volition. What we were able to find, the overwhelming majority of people who are accessing made are not accessing it because they're sad, because again, that's not even a possibility. They're accessing it because they are dealing with terminal cancer. Now, there are lots of, and MAID is a, is, a, is a heavily emotional issue, no question about it. But the fundamental principle behind MAID is that it is an evidence-based way to alleviate inevitable suffering. There's no other choices for this person other than you're going to have all of the suffering or not. And there's no right or wrong choice. To be clear, nobody has any business saying to another human being, oh, you know what? You absolutely should have to choose the suffering. And nobody has any business saying to another human being, oh, you know what? You should absolutely choose the medical assistance in dying. Nobody has the right to force another person on that. And it's written right into the protocols that exist for accessing the MAID program. But it's worth noting, in Canada, you have to be 18 years of age. Now, there are some universities and some hospitals that have said, hey, for people who have interminable, intractable, painful, inevitable conditions that are going to result in death, is this something that should maybe we have a conversation about in regards to pediatrics? That's a big conversation, but the most important thing about that conversation is it's not happening. But Tucker's doing something else in this clip that's really important to start to highlight because he's using some classic Fox News language. He's saying in there, hey, you know what? Um, You know, I don't know how many people are accessing the MAID program. I'm sure it's all people who were born born in Canada, though. I'd bet. I have no evidence whatsoever to make this claim, but I'm going to speculate regardless of what the the consequences might be. I'm going to speculate that the number of people who access made in Canada are 100% people who were born in Canada. And I'm going to speculate with no evidence whatsoever that the people who aren't accessing it, there's never been anyone who wasn't born in Canada. He's setting the stage 
for another argument. And he's using a very manipulative, some might argue, evil method to get people emotionally fired up, to prime them for his argument. But before we get to that real argument, he's got some other points he wants to make. ...of your most basic civil liberties, not the ones granted to you by the crown, but the ones granted to you by God. And those would include the freedom of speech, which is inalienable. It cannot be taken from you no matter who is in Ottawa. It doesn't matter who's in the prime minister's office. Your rights remain the same because you were born with them because you are not a slave, you're a human being. And you have inherent dignity because God made you. That's just a fact. And if they're taking those rights away piecemeal and doing so in the name of public safety, even as they make the public sphere much more dangerous, which they have, in case you haven't noticed, Canada has a lot more violent crime now than it did 20 years ago. Have you noticed? Of course you have. You live here. And if they're telling you you can't defend yourself against that crime, we're going to disarm you. You can't protect your life or your family. And you're like, oh, yeah, it's for the public safety. It's just not, not a big deal. These are weapons of war. No, they're weapons of self-defense, which you need and deserve as a free person, not a slave. And then they're telling you you can't complain about it. And then they're subsidizing the media to the point where all of your big media outlets, which are disgusting, are state media because they're taking state cash. Do you watch CBC? I do occasionally. I can turn in any hour of the day and I will learn that I am racist for driving an SUV and not being trans. That's, that's the whole schedule of CBC programming. But interpret that. That's not woke. Oh, it's woke. I hate the woke crap. It doesn't mean anything. They hate you. That's what they're saying. They're saying that you are bad. That's exactly what they're saying. Don't lie to yourselves. That's, what, that's all I'm saying. They hate you. You are bad. Anybody who disagrees with you, they hate you. And they're saying that you're bad. Now, Tucker managed to throw in another couple of transphobic comments in there. Because we got to stay on theme, right? But there's some other pieces that are really important because, again, we're talking about the Americanization of Canadian politics. It talks about freedom of speech. It's God-given right. All of your rights, they're God-given. If you're atheist, I guess, I don't know how that works. If you're not Judeo-Christian, oh, that's probably complicated too. Um, but they're God-given rights. That's all, that, that's all that really matters. They're God-given rights. Nobody can take them away from you unless, I guess, they choose to invoke the notwithstanding clause here in Canada. But that's a whole other thing. Um, he talks about the, the weapons of war. So right there, he's talking about, we're not talking about firearms control. We're talking about, you should be able to have whatever guns you want. Not only is it your right, but you deserve them. I'm not sure what somebody does to deserve, I don't know, a fully automatic weapon. I don't know where the distinction is in Tucker's mind. But I don't know what you do to deserve that. If you cle- if oh, I know what it is. Jordan Jordan Peterson was there. So if you make your bed properly enough times, then you get the automatic assault weapons. That must be what it is. Now it is worth noting. Tucker seems to have some really strong feelings about 
any organization, any media organization that takes state cash. We'll come back to that in a week or two. But of course, he's got more to go. And he gets, he's working his way to the, the, main, the main point that he wants to make fairly quickly here. So if they're limiting your freedom to say what you think, which is a freedom of conscience, the most basic of all freedom, your freedom to defend yourself and your family against bodily harm, which has got to be a twin to the first one. If they're taking away your voting power by changing the population of your country, which they are doing, and no one wants to talk about that, Canada has the highest immigration rate in the world per capita. And shut up, racist. That's not racist. I don't care if they're coming from New Zealand. I don't care if you're taking the population of Stockholm and moving them to Canada. If you change the population of the country, you change the country. And you dilute the voting power of the people who are vested in that country, the people who are born there, who have lived there long term, who understand the history and the culture of the country, who are bought in. And all of a sudden, their vote means much less. It's math. You guys do that. Math. That's horrifying that this is happening. And there's no public debate over it whatsoever. Why do you think that's happening? Is it for economic reasons? I'd be kind of okay with that. If someone could stand up and say, we're totally changing the population of Canada because we think it's better for our economy. Okay, tell me how. We can have rational conversations. We're adults. I'm a citizen. This is my government too. Tell me how that works. But they can't because that's not true. Look at your housing prices. Look at the strain on your services. Look at your healthcare system, which no Canadian I meet brags about anymore. And one of the main reasons is it's overburdened. There are too many people. Oh, we need population growth. Really? Tell me, tell me why. Tell me why all of these slogans make sense. I've watched Canadian hockey from time to time. They literally say diversity is our strength before they open the, the game. Okay. What does that mean and, and why is it true? Shut up. No, I'm not going to shut up. You're telling me to accept a slogan, so it's incumbent on you to explain what the slogan means and why it makes sense. That seems like a common sense rule. If you're forcing something down my throat, tell me how it tastes before I swallow it. Oh, shut up, racist. No, no, not going to. Not racist. I'm not going to shut up. Answer the freaking question, you weird cross-dressing <laughs> prime minister. Ah, uh, there we go with the cross-dressing jokes again. Can't stop with those for too long. Otherwise, people won't remember the, the, the point. You see, it's all about repetition and apparently replacement theory. What Tucker Carlson just espoused there and what he was referring to with his whole, oh, made, you know, 100% of people who are accessing made, they've got to be natural born Canadians. And yeah, but no, 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 not natural born Canadians or immigrants uh, are accessing made. So they're using made as a way to kill you. They're using made to, 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 to decrease the population of the real Canadians and they're they're also allowing all of these immigrants in. It's diluting the culture. It's diluting the voting pool. Give me one good reason why we should be letting all of these immigrants in here. I don't know. Tax base, maybe? I'm just spitballing, but I think I could come up with one off the cuff. Because all of those people who are coming to Canada and who are working in all of the jobs are paying taxes on that. If you want to pin 
the degradation of the healthcare system on anyone. You can't pin it on the people that are paying their taxes. You have to pin it on the people who are spending those taxes. Tucker Carlson stood up on the stage. Now, this is the Calgary one. We haven't gotten to the Edmonton one yet. We're going to. Like I said, this is a long haul tonight. Bear with me. Tucker Carlson is standing on stage. Daniel Smith sat down with him after and didn't challenge him on any of these points. Tucker Carlson is standing on stage saying the biggest problem with Canada right now is... Canada's being diluted by immigrants. He's espousing replacement theory. There's no way around it. He's trying to use made as a supplementary argument to replacement theory. That's what he wants to talk about. And it's not even so much about the, the replacement theory replacing Canadians. There's a very particular demographic that he seems to be particularly concerned about because it's the only one that he brought up as being a target. What are you doing to your Christians? And I say this for a couple of... I am a Christian, but that's not why I'm telling you this. I'm telling you this because there's there's kind of no more inoffensive and peaceful group in the world than the Christians. In fact, there isn't. Their religion t t tells them, commands them to turn the other cheek and to put the concerns of others above their own concerns. So if you have a problem with those precepts, explain it to me. Speak slowly so I can understand. I think every person in this room, regardless of your faith, can agree, yeah, I'm for that. I wish I was more like that. That's good. We need more of those people in society. Serve others for the sake of service. People who pray for their enemies. Who does that? Who would pray for an enemy? No one, except the Christians, and they do. They're commanded to. So if you're hassling that group, maybe you've got another agenda that we should be concerned about, even if we're not in that group. If we burn 90 of their churches to the ground, and the prime minister and his little weird buddies are endorsing that, Burning churches? If you're on the side of burning churches, let me just say, I don't need any other facts of the case. You're on the wrong side. If you're throwing preachers in prison for preaching the Christian gospel, not for hurting anyone, not for making pipe bombs, not for trying to castrate other people's children, not for importing millions of people into your country who are not going to have work, just for the crime of preaching the Christian gospel, you go to jail at the same time when they're encouraging your kids to do drugs and not just fentanyl, but weed. Don't raise your hand if you have a 15-year-old son, but come up to me after and tell me what you think of legalized weed. For real. And, and if you have a 15-year-old son, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They did that to you and to your son on purpose. And so in a country like that, in a world like that, if you think that preaching the gospel is so dangerous that the people who do it need to be in prison in shackles, you're serving someone other than the people of Canada, if you know what I mean. Guys, oh, talking about the devil he is. He's saying you serve the devil. I think I know what he means. 
But let's take a look at what COVID's not, or what, whoops, <laughs> it slipped there, didn't I? Uh, let's take a look at what Tucker's talking about there, because he says, the Christians, they do, they're so wonderful. It's not like they've ever been violent or traveled to other lands to try to exterminate people. Uh, it's not like the Crusades were a Christian endeavor. No, that's not what that was about. Uh, hey, there's there's never been a problem with uh, with with Christians and 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 racism and violence. There's there's never been like a a Ku Klux Klan thing. That's oh, that was imported from the states to Alberta too. We did that a while ago too, didn't we? Yeah. So here's the problem. As soon as you start to talk about any group as a monolith. You run into all kinds of problems because there's always going to be examples in any group of um, assholes who use that that religion and that faith to leverage their own power. That that happens in literally every organization. That's just a thing that happens. So if you want to start to make blanket statements about any group, you've kind of already disqualified yourself a little bit. But let's talk about the churches because you know there were there was so many. Churches that were burned down and Justin Trudeau celebrated it. No, no, that's not what happened. Uh, he actually quite clearly, uh, he condemned it. Uh, he called it unacceptable and wrong. Uh, on July 2nd, 2021, from this news story here, uh, tr- unacceptable and wrong, Trudeau condemns attacks on churches. So again, Tucker's just lying. He's lying to his audience because he can make money. It's kind of a theme, And then he gets into the pastors and he tries to frame the pastors who were imprisoned at the peak of COVID for violating health measures, not for preaching the gospel, not for spreading the good word of Christianity and taking care of their neighbors, not for any of that. They violated the public health orders. There were lots of churches and there were lots of religious organizations that said, you know what, we're going to do this uh, via Zoom. We're going to do this via Facebook Live. We're going to make sure that people can still hear the gospel, that we can still spread the gospel or whatever their particular religious uh, flavor was. There were lots of people who did that. And then there were the... uh, the assholes who decided that they were going to put themselves above everybody else. It was the people who were arrested weren't arrested because of their their religious leanings. They were arrested because they couldn't follow the basic rules that were put in place to keep their neighbors safe. They couldn't do it. Wasn't about the gospel, but Tucker frames it that way. Because then, look, everybody who's Christian is just a big victim of the big bad Justin Trudeau, who celebrates the burning of churches, even though he doesn't. But his his lack of homework, in particular, starts to really shine through towards the end of his speeches. Here, how much they dress it up in the passive aggressive self-help language of the modern left well it's really about public safety every time i turn on your freaking television shows everything's about public safety which is a euphemism for hard-edged fascism actually and frankly i'm a little bit more comfortable with the old-fashioned variety where guys in tight uniforms goose step through your town because at least you know who you're fighting and you know what's going to take to liberate your town get rid of these people and everything will be okay but when they show up and they're therapists with advanced degrees 
And they look at you in the face and say, no, actually, little Dylan just needs more fentanyl. Little Dylan's actually a girl. And we're going to, yes, he's a girl. Sorry, she's a girl. She's a girl. And if you don't agree, well, maybe we may have to remove Dylan to more care-affirming custody. Oh, you're going to take my kids away because I don't want to castrate them. They'll never say that, of course. Because clear language is their enemy. Because clear language exposes who they really are. They're not people who are trying to help you. They are people who are trying to hurt you. Anyone who goes after your children, anyone who encourages you to have fewer children, is trying to make you extinct. It's literally that simple. And it's only in the advanced West that we don't see that. Try that crap in Bulgaria. Try that in Serbia. How do you think that would fly in Serbia? We're just going to give little Voldok some fentanyl. And we think, you know, he may be... You wouldn't even get to the next sentence before you got shot. Because you're trying to kill someone's kids. And your average Serb, whatever you think of them, doesn't have generations of therapy talk that acts as a logical intermediary in his brain and prevents him from seeing what's actually going on here. They're trying to kill my kids. I'm the father. I won't allow it. I'll lay my life down to prevent it. It's literally that simple. So public safety is just another term for hard-edged fascism, is it? Whoops. Didn't really think that one through. Didn't really take a look at the roster of the province that you were uh, you were coming to. Did you there, there Tucker? Because we've got a minister. It, it, that, that premier that you love so much, she actually made a minister of, of public safety. So um, what, do, what, do you, what do you suppose suppose that means, Tucker? What else, what else has happened in the, the name of, of public safety in this, this province? Uh, oh, oh, yes, um, we needed to clean up the, the streets to reduce the violent crime. Uh, Mike Ellis talked about the importance of public safety and uh, the, the, have, to, have to make sure that public safety gets rid of the, the homeless encampments, um, despite the fact that human rights groups sued the city of Edmonton over encampment clearing because they were concerned about the, the violation of, of human rights. Um, and then can we also just talk for a quick second about, uh, about Tucker's odd little end there where he talks about try that in, in Serbia? Because um, that's a call to violence. What he's saying is, if you were to do this in any other country in the world, if, if somebody was to say, hey, we should look at safe supply in any other country in the world, they would just be shot. And then he says, by extension, that that's pretty much okay because that's what any responsible parent would do. They would just shoot that person. This type of rhetoric is extraordinarily dangerous, especially when you frame it within the context of all the other things that he said. They're your enemies. They're evil. Now, there's a lot of rational people that would hear that and go, oh, I don't know about that. But there are some other people who have been radicalized. And this type of language, when they hear that, is extraordinarily dangerous. And that was just Calgary.
So, as a as a precursor, before we get into the the Edmonton uh, uh, shit show, um, I just like to take a quick sec to uh, highlight the fact that he said all of these things, and then the Premier of Alberta, who wasn't scheduled to appear in Edmonton, then made a point, having heard him say all of these things. Made a point to go up to Edmonton to do her little seven minutes where she talked about the importance of rational debate, the importance of not being hyperbolic, the importance of, hey, here's this guy who embodies all of these qualities. I don't know what speech she listened to in Calgary, but she clearly felt that it was it was OK and she could run with it. So let's move up to Edmonton where where Tucker doubled down on a lot of his points, but he had a couple of important variations that, again, since we're fact checking Tucker tonight, are worth pointing out. Help? Really? They're trying to help? How does it help you or your family when the government of British Columbia gives fentanyl to your children without your knowledge? That is literally happening right now. And it's been stopped by the premier here, who's not giving fentanyl to children. Amen. Bravo. Hard to believe you even have to say that. But it is happening right down the road, right over the mountains in British Columbia. What is that? It's not an expression of compassion. Fentanyl is the number one killer of people under 40 in the United States, number one. There's no safe dosage of fentanyl, it's a poison. Manufactured in Mexico with Chinese precursors designed to kill people, and it does. And so to hand that to children without their parents' knowledge is what? An attempt to kill your children. What else could it be? That's not compassion. There's no other way to read that. And I just fear if you're in the middle of a society that says that's okay, or it's on the spectrum of okay, it's something that we should consider, you may lose sight of the fact that that's not only completely unacceptable, it's a declaration of war against you and your children. People who are trying to kill your children are not your friend. They're your sworn blood enemy. Is there another way to interpret that? Am I being crazy? I don't think that I am. Oh, no, you are. You very much are. You're, you're very, very being crazy right now. It's literally happening in BC. It's literally not. We've already addressed that piece. Fentanyl is a poison. There's no safe dosage. It's definitely not, I don't know, one microgram per kilogram to a maximum dose of 100 micrograms repeated every five minutes to a maximum dose of 250 Micrograms, because, yeah, there is a safe dosage because it's not a poison. It gets used all of the time in medical procedures, not just in Alberta or Calgary uh, or Edmonton, but in Canada. And, oh, gasp, they use it in the United States for medical procedures, too. Tucker, again, doesn't know what he's talking about, but he's happy to use hyperbolic language in order to try to fire people up and make people afraid. Because that's how Tucker gets paid. Now, Tucker talked earlier about the type of fascism that he, he prefers. He prefers his, his fascism to come with uh, young men in, in tight clothing. Um, but uh, he doubled down on that in a really gross way in Edmonton. Unscrupulous people in power do, if they're smart is they don't dispatch an army of young men in tight uniforms to goose step through your town because it's a little bit too obvious. You've seen that movie. And you sort of know what happens next. 
You take up arms, you form a resistance, you drive the people out, and freedom returns, right? You guys have seen that movie. It's been done about 50,000 times. And oh, if only that's what we were facing, because that is straightforward. That's the kind of masculine expression of fascism. But the West is now facing a far slyer opponent, which is the feminine expression of fascism, the Christia Freeland version of fascism. Yes, yes. And I know a lot about this because I knew Christia Freeland uh, when she you know, was a journalist at the Financial Times, whose name shall forever live in infamy for employing her. And I remember even then thinking, this woman is not bright at all. But boy, does she have high self-esteem. I don't think I've ever even seen, it's off, it's off the, I don't know what the self-esteem measurement scale is, the Richter scale. But her self-esteem was literally unassailable. It was bomb-proof. If a nuclear bomb dropped on your town, you could hide beneath Christia Freeland's self-esteem and live. There's like nothing you could do to shake it. Nothing. No amount of evidence of her stupidity and wrong decisions and idiotic views could dissuade her from the core belief that she was awesome and you were not. And I kind of stood back in admiration. So I guess I shouldn't be totally shocked that she's helping to run and destroy your country. But she's doing it in, a, in her signature way. She's not getting on the CBC, her media outlet, which like almost all outlets in this wonderful oppressed country is run by the government. It's all state media, it's Albania 1985. And I'm sure we have people whose families were refugees from Albania, welcome, um, and you know what I'm talking about. But at least you could say of the Albanian leader in 1985, Enver Hoxha, that when he went full fascist, he just like didn't mince words. Shut up and obey or we'll shoot you. Christian Freeland is wise enough, clever enough, in her serpent-like way, to make it all about your protection and safety. All about your protection and safety. No, we're just trying to help you. That's why you're in shackles. You're being arrested right now for your safety. Oh, it's for the common good. Don't worry, you'll understand. I mean, there's no misogynism going on in that, that clip whatsoever. Tucker likes masculine uh, fascism, but the feminism, feminine fascism, the, the, the serpentine fascism, that's the, the bad stuff. Uh, she's not that bright. It's fascinating that Tucker Carlson is saying that women who are in government, who limit people's ability to express dissent, I don't know, like blocking them or something, uh, and who are justifying, I don't know, tearing down people's homes uh, by saying that it's in the interest of public safety. It's, it's fascinating that Tucker would take that particular line of thought uh, as he as he's there with the premier of Alberta, but he revisited Maid too. ...of Canada is killing Canadians, and not just a few, and not just the terminally ill. Over 50,000 so far. 50,000! Any organization that kills 50,000 people is a genocidal organization. Period! And I don't care how you dress it up. That's just a fact. That's like a bottom line on a chart. How many people have you killed? Oh, 50,000. Oh, you're not in the good guy category. Sorry, we can't. We're going to bring you up at The Hague, actually, where you should be. 
And now, under consideration, apparently next month is a plan to expand the MAID program, the, the systematic killing of Canadians, not all of whom are terminally ill, many of whom are just sad because Canadian society has made them sad. They're going to expand that to children. And that's the point at which you have to say, I'm sorry. We're, we're not going to be polite anymore. You, can, you literally can't do that. And I don't care if someone, you don't need to be, by the way, a religious freak to think it's wrong for a government to kill people at scale. And I don't care, choice, they'll dress it up. No, it's totally evil is the truth. And it's deeply revealing of who they are and what they want. Oh, it looks like Tucker got some notes, but, uh, but he screwed them up. Because, yeah, as I already said, in March of 2024, the government of Canada is going to expand the people who are eligible to made to include certain extreme mental health conditions. It's not just people who are sad. So, and it's certainly not kids. So he managed to conflate the the March 24th changes that are going to include mental health. And he somehow thought that that, okay, no, but well, what, what if I just say that that's kids? So again, he's lying to people. Somebody clearly gave him some notes and he clearly screwed them up, but he seems to be again, entirely comfortable, just lying to people. But as he got, got through the evening, he, he really just stopped even trying to say the, the quiet part quietly. Policies formulated by people who actually loved you and had just gone off course and were doing the wrong thing, as you often do with your kids. If you have children, you often make the wrong decision with your kids. But you're brought back on course by your love for your children. And so over time, you make the right decisions because you're animated for a desire to protect them because you love them. But if you hated your children, all of your mistakes would be in one direction and that direction would be toward destruction. And there is zero evidence that the Trudeau government loves you. And there's overwhelming evidence that they hate you and your families. How is that not true? If, if liberal and NDP politicians are sending fentanyl to your children, if they're trying to add your children to the list of people who can be killed by the state, who aren't even terminally ill, if they are changing the composition of your country without asking your permission, if every communication you have with Ottawa is a lecture about your moral deficiencies, you're a bad person, shut up racist. There's no love at all. There's only contempt. Trudeau hates you. He's doing everything because he hates you. And because we're trying to do the replacement theory. Have an immigration policy that makes your country stronger, your economy stronger, your country more cohesive. Amen. And you have had that for generations. And everybody in Canada is happy about that. That's not what you have now. You have the wholesale importation of millions of people into your country for no obvious benefit at exactly the time when your housing prices are so out of control. Like, can your kids afford a house? This is true in my country too. And so the question you have to ask is, why, are, why is the government doing this? Is there an economic case to be made? Maybe there is. I've never heard it. Maybe there's some central planner who's decided this is going to make us all much happier and much more prosperous. They don't even attempt to convince you of that. They just shout slogans in your face. And if you ask a question, they call you a racist. And if you say, but I'm actually not a racist, and I'm not speaking for myself, I just want to know the answer. Why are you doing this?
without the consent of the governed. It's a decision you made unilaterally, and they won't answer your question. Diversity is our strength. Okay, that may be true. It may not be true. I don't know. It's a metaphysical question, actually. But in practical terms, why do we have the highest immigration rate in the world? Shut up! And of course, the answer is political power. Political power. This is a democracy. Your citizenship entitles you to choose your leaders. Your vote is valuable because there's a finite supply of those votes. It's very much unlike the Canadian dollar. Right? Or the US dollar. Which in a pinch, they can just print more of. And then the Canadian dollars you have in your pocket are worth less. Do you know anything about this? Have you heard this principle before? It's called supply and demand. And if you misuse it, if you ignore the most basic law of economics, you wind up with, repeat after me, inflation, with which you are familiar. Just inflation. The same principle holds for citizenship in a democracy. And if you don't like the way that the public votes, import new voters. And that's precisely what they're doing. They're doing that in the United States as well. And here's my point. You're taking it. So there it is again. The whole point of uh, Mr. Carlson's diatribe is to get to the place of replacement theory. To get to the place of, well, you know, here's the thing. They're replacing you with immigrants. They're trying to dilute the value of your vote with immigrants. And again, Daniel Smith heard the first version of that speech. And chose to attend for the second version of that speech. And to validate Tucker Carlson and his views. She has not since said, well, you know, I think the replacement theory thing that Tucker was spinning was kind of, I think it might have been it's a little bit of bullshit. She hasn't stood up for all of the new Canadians that have come to Alberta. She hasn't stood up for all of the new Canadians who pay taxes, who work critical jobs, who got this province in many cases through the pandemic in many different ways. No, she'll just, she'll just silently let that go. But in case you were wondering of the, the type of quality of discourse, if we haven't made our point sufficiently, you have to know Tucker comes with the pedophile jokes. Way for Canadians to know what's happening and to understand. You need a way. And it can't just be about Justin Trudeau, who's, if I, can, if I can just say, so absurd that that guy is going to sashay off into history fairly soon, I think. Because, I mean, honestly, someone told me last night, I was talking to someone, um, to one of your countrymen at dinner last night, and Justin Trudeau, is, who I've never met, though I know his cousin Gavin Newsom, but he, he's so... Uh, he's so ridiculous. He's so transparently phony. I mean, I just, I'm mesmerized watching him. And so my very obvious, as a foreigner, question at dinner was, does anyone believe him? And everyone at the table said, oh, oh yeah, young people do. And I hope that's not true. No, it's not true. But the point is, there can't be more than 20% of Canadians who, thinks, who think he's not repulsive because he's just so obviously repulsive. Would you leave your kids with him? 
Would she be like, oh, you know, we're going, on, we need to go, go to Canadian Tire for an hour. Uh, Justin, can you watch my kids? <laughs> I, I don't think you're going to do that. But you hand him your country. It's totally cool. Don't worry. He's a good steward. Um, but he will collapse under the weight of his own ludicrousness and go back to Cuba or do whatever he does. But... What? You know, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's just too great to check. Um. Facts don't matter. I don't know if it's true or not. It's too great to check. Now, again, I can see in the chat that there's some people that are like, oh, my God, this is so brutal. This is so bad. Can we just make it stop? We've only got two, three clips left, uh, and two of them are really short. So we're almost done the Tucker train wreck. But it is really important. Because one of the things that's critically important to understand is that there were a couple thousand people in Calgary who showed up for this. There were, by some measures, five to seven thousand people who showed up in Edmonton for this. Now, whether or not they paid for the tickets doesn't really matter. They still heard this. And one of the things that made us decide to do this, this very special fact-checking episode was the fact that Graham Thompson, who's an incredible reporter, wrote a column where he talked about his sort of exit interviews, where there were two little old ladies who, who were leaving, and he asked them what they thought, and they said, oh, it's inspired me to tell my truth, and if people don't like it, I'm just going to keep telling my truth because, you know, people need to hear what's actually going on. There are people who believe this stuff. There are people who buy this stuff. And it's critically important to point it out. If this was some fringe exercise, it would be far less concerning. But again, this is something that the Premier of Alberta chose to legitimize. And so for anybody who cares about this province, we have a responsibility to stand up and go, oh, I think that might be bullshit. But for all of the bullshit that Tucker offered up, which was, to be clear, a lot, he, uh, he did have too little, uh, too little moments of, of clarity, moments of, of truth. Um, I'm not sure what, what to call them. I mean, it's that stopped clock theory. Uh, twice a day, even a stopped clock is right. Um, Tucker had his, his two little moments as he, he went through his, uh, his, his evening, his, his rant. We're going to share those for you. But before we do, we want to share two other quick little things. That just go to show how the naivete of Danielle Smith has yet again embarrassed this province on an international level. Danielle Smith justified this whole exercise by saying, oh, Tucker's got this huge audience. He's going to reach so many people. And I want to make sure that, you know, I can tell the Alberta story, even though she really didn't. She really didn't tell the Alberta story at all. What was the publicly released content from Mr. Carlson? He released his two speeches and that's it. The only reason we have the Danielle uh, Smith clip that we do is because somebody uh, afforded us a copy, let's say. 
if you wanted to watch the the rest of the content, then you're looking at a a pay-per-view version where you have to sign up to be one of his his members. So you have to be somebody who really, really wants the, the Tucker Carlson experience on the regular. But perhaps the most embarrassing part of this whole ridiculous exercise, at least for Danielle Smith, is the the event that she billed to tell Alberta's story is titled Liberating Canada, the Jordan Peterson discussion in Calgary. The episode details Tucker and Jordan Peterson on stage in Calgary, Canada. Also, <laughs> it's like when you're the opener for a headline band, but you're supposed to be the main act. Tucker's discussion with Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. She's a footnote in the episode. But what were the things that Tucker told maybe a little bit of truth about? Well, he did talk about his belief on politicians. The one thing they want is to be taken seriously. These are broken people. These are hollow people who are desperate for power because there's nothing else inside. There's nothing else inside. A normal person doesn't lust for power. He doesn't. He can use power to affect good, but power for its own sake is not interesting to him. In fact, it's dangerous and wise people stay away from it. And so the kind of people who do lust for power are freaks. They're sideshow freaks. And the last thing they want is for you to say that out loud because they melt. Like a vampire at noon, they just disappear. And the second you laugh at them, you realize how good it feels to tell the truth and you are empowered by the spirit of truth when you do that and you become stronger. And so I look forward to your mockery of the people who misrule you. Thank you. Oh, I think we can, we can handle some of that here. But that wasn't even Tucker's biggest moment of truth. That wasn't even Tucker's most uh, Freudian slippy slip of the night. And this is the last clip from Mr. Carlson that we want to play for you. Before you take any sort of action or imagine that some election is going to fix things, comma, which it's not, spoiler alert, because this country, like every country, every country, very much and maybe especially including my country, has a lot of frauds in that business. Sorry. It does. I would know. It's the one thing I know a lot about. I mean, is Tucker's channeling his very best Donald Trump right there? Yeah, Tux. I imagine fraud is something. Being a fraud, defrauding people, is something that you know a great deal about, I bet. That's the end of our Tucker Carlson segment. Props to everybody who weathered through that, because that was a that was a gong show. We're going to be doing a, a two-parter episode again, I suspect, this time around, because we are nowhere near done just yet. And that's it for another episode of The Breakdown. As always, if you appreciate the kind of content that we're trying to produce here, we would love nothing more than if you thought about signing up to be one of our Patreon sponsors at www.patreon.com slash thebreakdownab, where for just the price of a fancy cup of coffee a month, you can help us continue to produce this kind of content. Whether you're listening to the audio version of the podcast, in which case, 
maybe leave a, a, a review and a rating or whether you're watching it on one of our streaming platforms, we want to say a big thank you to everybody who is part of the Breakdowns audience. And as always, take care of each other and keep the conversation going.